Hey, this is Troy L. Smith, reporter for Cleveland.com and host of the CLE Rocks podcast. On Wednesday, March 9th, we hosted another live recording of the podcast focused on the World Series of Rock, the legendary concert series held at Cleveland Stadium from 1974 to 1980. The event featured a panel of Cleveland music legends and is brought to you by Wonderstruck Music Festival, taking place July 9th and 10th at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland, Ohio. Get your tickets now. Wonderstruck is coming to Cleveland. For this two-day music festival, see top artists including the Lumineers, Vampire Weekend, and more. Get your tickets now at wonderstruckfest.com. I want to thank everybody for coming out. This is a really awesome crowd. Uh, I've been excited for this event for a long time. It is called CLE Rocks Presents, and it's an extension of Cleveland.com's CLE Rocks podcast, which you can find on every major streaming service. Um, just want to shout out our sponsor. All of our events and podcast episodes are brought to you by uh, Wonderstruck Music Festival, which takes place at Lakeland Community College in Kirtland on July 9th and 10th. Uh, Wonderstruck's been doing its thing for a few years now. This is by far the biggest lineup they've had over two days. You have Vampire Weekend and the Lumineers headlining. You have All Time Low, Michael Franti and Spearhead, along with more than two dozen other acts. Now, I know these might be some young bands for the target audience we have here tonight, (laughs) but it's a good time. Food, drinks, you can bring kids if you have some kids. It's just an all-around good time. And it's a tiered pricing system. So if you go to wonderstruckfest.com, what you pay if you buy your tickets tonight is uh, less than what you're going to pay if you wait until this summer. Um, and that is put on by the Elevation Group. And again, it's Wonderstruck Music Festival, July 9th and 10th at Lakeland Community College. Okay, let's go back to 1974 now. And uh, World Series of Rock. I want to introduce uh, this amazing panel uh, before we get started. I'm going to start off with, as you, you know, I feel weird doing these introductions because everybody here probably knows these people, but uh, <laughs> Jules and Fran Belkin, please give it up for them. Um, you know, obviously, Jules co-founded Belkin Productions uh, with his brother Mike. Uh, it became, you know, a massive force in the, in the concert industry. Um, that really changed the landscape of music, uh, not just in Cleveland, but in the Midwest and the entire country. And of course, one of their crowning achievements was the World Series of Rock. And I want to shout out Fran because, as Mike Miller mentioned, she's going to be, you know, have a table with her book outside. But you got to read this thing because it chronicles Belkin's entire run. Um, and you can get it online at, at a bunch of local bookstores, I believe, if it's not sold out. Uh, Rock This Town, Backstage in Cleveland, Stories You Never Heard, and Swag You Never Saw. Uh, you know, continuing our introductions, we have uh, radio executive and author John Gorman seated in the middle here. So John moved from Boston to Cleveland in '73. So you know, a year before all this really started with the World Series of Rock, and under his leadership at this station, you guys might have heard of called WMMS, he became uh, a national force and one of the most popular and powerful radio stations in the country. John has a book, too, that I was reading this morning as I was preparing The Buzzard, Inside the Glory Days of WMMS, and Cleveland Rock Radio. 
if you want to know about WMMS, and I, the detail in this book, John, is crazy. Like, just the detail for every story you have. The stories is it, I could tell. The stories you can <laughs> True. Well, if those are the stories you can tell, I got to uh, figure out what these ones you aren't telling. Um, so, yeah, pick up that book. Um, it, it's a must-read for Cleveland historians, Cleveland music fans. And last but not least, Cleveland radio legend, Denny Sanders. All right, so I had to shrink your bio a little bit because you've done so much here. But, um, you know, one of the most well-known radio personalities during your time at WMMS uh, in his glory days. And then you also uh, put on, you were, you were the director, creative director and programmer for the popular Coffee Break concert series, right? And people remember that. You can still, right. It's amazing, too, because I've listened to a lot of the recordings. A lot of them you can still find on YouTube, and it's pretty incredible. Yeah, and uh, Denny has done a lot. He's been everywhere, done pretty much everything in the business. Um, and you're currently on WDLW. Right. Uh, cool Cat Oldies is the name of the show, afternoon show. Yep, just to stay busy. <laughs> Gives me something to do. All right, I just want to plug it because you can listen to it on 1380 AM and 98.9 FM, and it's streaming on uh, WDLWradio.com. All right, so all that's out of the way. Oh, you don't have, where's the book? I wanted to plug a book for you. I've not written a book yet. What, my book? Yeah, you have a book? No, I don't have a book. <laughs> no, John, John, John said it all in his book. He did that's a really true. good job. No, uh, no I'll tell you Denny had some amazing ratings books over the years. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about the World Series of Rock. Um, 1974, you had these two powerhouse institutions in Cleveland, WMMS and Belkin Productions, join forces for the World Series of Rock. And Jules, I'll start with you. You know, you got, Belkin had done a lot of iconic shows up at that point, stuff we look back on that was truly legendary from Akron Rubber Bowl, Bowie's first show in the US, shows at Allen Theater. What made the timing right at this point in 73 into 74 to pull off something like the World Series of Rock for you guys? Uh, you know, there came a time in the, um Eat the mic. I eat the mic. I Put some mayonnaise on it. Um, it came a time where we started running out of venues uh, that would fit the enormity of the bands. The bands were getting so big. We were selling out. Of course, at that time, uh, there was no Coliseum. We were selling out Public Hall very quickly. And... Um, there was a feeling that, that let's expand. Well, there was no place else to expand to except the stadium. But um, early on, we had conversations with Art Modell, who was the owner of the Browns, uh, also ran the stadium. And he was not really a fan of rock and roll. I remember his wife, uh, when I went into a meeting with with him and his wife was sitting over the side and we start talking rock and roll and she walked out of the room. It was just <laughs> the last thing she wanted to do with her husband's stadium was rock and roll. But, but eventually we did persuade them uh, to give us a break. Actually, you know, I shouldn't say that. There was a, a um, concert at the stadium prior to the World Series of Rock. Leon Russell was there in 73, I believe. August, I 
And instead of playing to the entire stadium, we set the uh, the, the stage so it faced the um, the bleachers. So if you can picture the rest of the stadium behind the stage and playing to the bleachers. So he did acquiesce to that, but that was you know maybe 10, 12,000 people. Um, so that going into a situation where you're gonna use the entire stage, stadium was, was gonna be a little bit of a push. Well, I wanna say too, you know, before, you know, we're gonna continue obviously, but the reason this panel is so special in regards to World Series is because the three guys next to me, sitting to my right, they were all at the initial meeting for the World Series of Rock. Um, John, I gotta ask, who came, how did the name come up? How did you guys come to the name? I don't know. I, I, I remember we were talking about trying to come now up with No, he claims name. it was his. It well, was ours. I, he had nothing I mean, to do with it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the only thing I, we were saying is we have to come up with a name that... Oh, now, wait a minute. I was the one that yeah. came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I don't. The whole idea is to come up with a name that nobody has, has used before in rock and roll and all that. But it's like, well, what doesn't Cleveland have? Or what hasn't happened in Cleveland yet? <laughs> That, that was that was my line, and from there it sort of developed. At that time, you remember the Indians were in last place, and you know they were barely getting a thousand people in to see the see the game. So, well, my story is, <laughs> uh, my brother Mike uh, was a a real avid baseball fan, and um, he kind of felt that this was going to be the thing that was going to be similar to a World Series. It was going to be big. And he was right. It was big. Uh, Denny, I want to ask you, so when you go back to that time, uh, the 70s in, in downtown Cleveland, rock and roll music was really one of the only things bringing people downtown. When this concept came across you know, to you, how big was it? What was your reaction to, okay, we're going to fill a state, we're going to fill a municipal stadium for a rock and roll show? What were your first thoughts? Well, MMS was a, a pretty dominant station in those days. We had about 700,000 regular listeners, which is about one in every three people in all of Northeast Ohio. You don't get anywhere near that today. MMS, yeah, thank you. MMS, for all of us, really. Not, uh, MMS uh, today, I think it's, they're lucky if they get 200,000 uh, listeners, and the top of the uh, radio ratings now is about 400,000. Uh, but for everybody. Uh, the, for huh? everybody, for everybody's for yeah, yeah, that's about it. And uh, so the point is that we we reached a lot of people, and I felt, and all of us did, that this was going to be a big hit. The one thing I can tell you that I remember was that there was a a, a lot of uh, pushback from various city officials who were absolutely convinced that this was going to be some kind of major. Uh, uh, problem with uh, robberies and shootings and drug overdoses and everything. And they said, my gosh, if you put 70,000 people in there, we're liable to have 30,000 drug overdoses. I mean, it's ridiculous. They were, they were just preposterous concepts. I remember uh, uh, one of the TV stations uh, uh, came to the station and they wanted me to come on and do a stand-up. And they said, uh, well do you think downtown can stand rock and roll? <laughs> and I said that they had trouble at the All Nations Festival, they had trouble at the Rib Burnoff, they had trouble at two or three other of these events downtown, and I said, it's not that can uh, 
uh, uh, the city stand rock and roll, it's can rock and roll stand the city? <laughs> and that clip <laughs> got uh, all around and, uh, and so, but uh, it was an amazing uh, series of shows because when you stop to think of how many people were there, and, and Jules, what, 50, 60, 70,000, depending on the show, uh, that's the size of a small city. And uh, there was very little trouble, very little, uh, 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 you know, disruptions. Most people behaved. There was an occasional, you know, jerk, but, uh, you know, nowhere near what anybody can uh, look at for 50, 60, 70,000 people. And uh, the, the other memory I have of it, I can tell you, is that in the beginning, there was an all-news station in Cleveland, WERE, and they were people power, and they were a tabloid AM station. Uh, everything was uh, uh, sensational and, and uh, dramatic on this station. And so uh, one of the, the uh, World Series shows, one of the early ones, Evidently, a homeless man fell off the pier near where Captain Pranks used to be over on 9th Street. Some homeless man fell off the pier, and there was a robbery up around 12th Street or up near Playhouse Square. And I'm driving into the show, and I put WERE on, and, and they go, World Series of Rock Death Toll stands at two. <laughs> we, I'm thinking, this is... What is going on here? But eventually, uh, people realized that the, the shows were uh, just fine. They were great big events. There wasn't a lot of trouble. Uh, and it's really uh, remarkable when you think 50, 60, 70,000 people, the size of a small city where there was no major crime. Stop to think about that. Actually, that brought back a uh, memory about the guy off the pier. <laughs> about uh, a few years prior to that, The Who was in town. And uh, it was a very snowy November or December, rather cold. And um, after the show, there was a restaurant at the end of the 9th Street Pier called Captain Frank's. Remember? Yep. Well, Keith Moon and the band went out for a little partying at the end of the pier. And Keith jumped into the lake that night in November. So, you know, in reading about this, I'm curious, and maybe Fran, you could talk about this. So you have, you, you have this plan to do these shows at the stadium, bring in some of the biggest rock acts potentially in, in the world. But that's not a, that wasn't a music venue. So what was it like, sort of, when you got into trying to, you know, create these dressing rooms, you know, and spaces to to fit these egos for these rock and roll bands that you were bringing in? How did you manage to do that? Well, I, in fact, I had asked Jules today because I wasn't sure why we did it, but. There were no dressing rooms near where our stage was. There were dressing rooms for the Indians, but they were using their dressing rooms, so we couldn't use those. So it was this dark, damp, horrible space that was behind the stage in the uh, causeway there, walkway. So Jules found somebody in Cuyahoga Falls, I don't know, who was renting RVs. So it was his idea to rent one RV per band and we brought them all in and we made them in a circle 
And then my job was to go and find plants and rugs and lamps and flowers. And we made like a little village for the bands. And the nice thing was that we had benches and, and instead of them being cramped into their RVs, they would come out and sit around. We had pinball machines and a hot tub. And they all got to talk to each other because ordinarily bands didn't knock on each other's door. But this way they were all together and it was a really, a very nice warm atmosphere backstage. Okay, so I gotta ask, when you read about the World Series of Rock and, and all the stuff that went on, went on over the years, all the bands that came in, all the stories, uh, when I first was reading about it, what surprised me was the first show, the first headliner was the Beach Boys. So talk to me about uh, choosing the Beach Boys as the first act. Me? Anyone who knows. Um, you, you signed the deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was Mike. Mike did, did the deal. You know, it was just Beach Boys at that time was a very hot band. Um, and it seemed to be a, a good opener. It wasn't, you know, hard rock. We weren't uh, going to alienate any audiences. And, uh, you know, a lot of the choices over the years were made for different reasons. I was just looking at um, the lineups over the years. And if you would look at particular um, series, there were some, some series where, because we were managing the James Gang at the time, uh, Michael Stanley, um, uh, Donnie Iris, well, Donnie never played, but if we needed a filler, we would put our bands into the uh, show. A lot of times, the bands that were playing actually were traveling around the country as a group. So you'd get a uh, the headliner, and then the under band, the last band in the, uh, in the show, would be traveling together anyhow. And then other times, we would make uh, decisions because there was a little pressure from an agency that said, you know what, if you want Peter Frampton, you got to take Derringer because it's the same agency. So a lot of our decisions were not necessarily ours, but a lot of decisions were because of these guys. Uh, these guys were doing music, uh, hot music at the time. That's where we went. And, and John, I want to ask you, so, you know, Beach Boys has said you guys plan this, you know, Range of concert gets that. Uh, I think it was seven dollars. Tickets were in advance, eight dollars at the gate. Talk to me about being in the press box and and looking down into the stadium and seeing all this come to fruition. What was that feeling like? It, I mean, it it was an amazing sight to you know have that 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 view from the back of the stadium and just seeing the sea of people. And most of them, uh, pretty much all of them, were behaving and having a good time. Now, the one that I remember is we, we had a person by the name of Murray Saul. You remember Murray? Got it, got it, got it. And Murray, at every World Series of Rock, he would take a break from where we were watching in the press box, and he would walk into the crowd. And we'd be sitting there looking at this, the crowd, and all of a sudden, it was almost like the Ten Commandments, the Red Sea parting. You could tell exactly where Murray was going. 
And he'd walk all to the front of the stage and around the stage and back down, and people were just, you know, standing up as he walked by and saluting him. I mean, we actually did a, a TV commercial at one of the World Series of Rocks with Murray doing his get down in front of 80,000 people. We still have that TV, uh, TV spots on, on YouTube, apparently. But, you know, we'd watch Murray do this whole, you know, you know this, this whole circumference of the, 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 um, the what they got, the field. Anyway, he would come back, and he'd have this baggie with him full of joints and who knows what <laughs> that, people, that the people are handing him. Hey, Murray, hey, have a joint. And, and Murray would come back with this bag full of joints. And, of course, we'd say, Murray, you don't want to smoke those because you don't know what's in them. But nonetheless, that was one of the more bizarre things I remember sitting back. <laughs> I'm curious, Jules, um, you know, when you have this successful event, going into that, had you already thought and planned out doing more than just the one event, or was it waiting and seeing how, how it went with the Beach Boys? Good, good question, Troy. I tried. Yeah, um, I tried really hard. <laughs> You're a legend. I'm trying, you know, bring my A game. <laughs> It's out here someplace. I just have to get hold of it. Um, I, I, I think that we had plans to do more than one. You know, extending it over the years, I think, was just a matter of its success. The success itself brought another year. Um, I think that, that um, Mr. Modell was happy um, with what he saw there. There were many, many problems that we encountered along the way, but it became such a um, an important part of the summer that you had to do one more. Though, you know, a lot of these things were planned really six months in advance. We would book shows six months before we really played them. Uh, and some of the World Series um, concerts were really planned quite a bit before they played. You know, there's there was the Beach Boys, then there was the one with uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and a few bands, and then you get to the big one, uh, the first big one, which was or a huge one, if you will. They were all big: um, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. You know, I know a lot of you guys were there, but for some reason, you don't look the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with Santana and the band, uh, you know, being on the radio and doing these things, Denny. After the Beach Boys, it was ten weeks, I think, uh, in the you know go heading towards Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. What was it like? What was the momentum like having these successful events and then building to this massive record-setting show? Everybody was hoping that we could do another one, and uh, luckily we did. Everything pulled together. Uh, Jules, I remember. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't the Crosby, Stills and Nash and Young show the the biggest draw, or one of the very biggest? Wasn't it? No, the Stones, of course, were Stones the and Pink Floyd, but yeah, but I Floyd. But, but I remember Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young had a like packed the place. 80, they said eighty-eight. There was I think you sold no, no. eighty-two thousand over in eighty-two thousand was the largest. Uh, that well, was the Stones. So the numbers there's you sold eighty-two thousand according to some record books. Eighty-two thousand for Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Maybe eighty-eight thousand were there. There were some reports, I think, that 90,000, over 90,000 no, came no, in. No, no, <laughs> no. 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 We, 
That's another story. <laughs> the bands wanted it to be 90,000. Crosby, Stills, Nash Young really wanted well, it to you be 90,000. You know, the 90, bands was, hey, no, there's more than 80,000 people here, you know, but that's not, uh, you know, they were inflating it, not, not us. What was it like when you got up to that number, when you got, you know, you get into 80,000, how do you contain the madness of it all in terms of, you know, uh, alcohol, drugs, people just falling from the upper deck or jumping from the upper deck? Not so much the music and the bands. You seem to have that down. What was it like with all that stuff that was unpredictable? You know, you had to prepare for, for what we considered a sellout. And the sellout was really all of the, the um, stands. And another... We would figure 10,000 people on the field, but if you look at the field, there might have been 20,000. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, we, we put a cap, and I don't think that we ever really came to the point where we said sold out. We, we sold what we had, and uh, generally would, so many tickets were sold just prior to the, um, the day of the show, the concert, so you really never knew exactly what you were going to end with because they weren't reserved seats. It was all general admission. So you're heading in, so heading into 1975, second year of World Series of Rock. You bring back the Beach Boys. I think they're co-headlining with Chicago. Uh, John, there's a story in your book. I think it was Carl and Dennis Wilson. Did they stop by WMMS the night, day before... The World Series rock and yeah, things I'll, I'll got a little story. crazy. We, we remember that well. Okay. Uh, we had Carl. Both of the Beach Boys came down to the station, and uh, Denny was uh, finishing up his show. We had Carl Wilson to become a guest disc jockey, and Dennis was with us and all that. Then all of a sudden we look around. Where's Dennis? And Dennis Wilson was kind of a crazy guy anyway. I mean, he, he needed a leash, but. Uh, <laughs> To make a long story short, we're looking around the station. Where's Dennis? You know, because Carl is doing his DJ show, and he had a couple of the other ba band members in, uh, in there just uh, sort of hanging around. And the, the next day is the, the World Series of Rock. It turns out that at the time, the station was at 55th in Euclid, where the Agora is today. And there used to be a bar in that area, and it was 55th in Euclid, and it was called the Apollo Lounge. And we're looking all over the place, and suddenly, say, it can't be, but let's check. And and it's and it's it's basically a black R and B lounge, you know. It's and it's it's catering to a different kind of feel. But it, you, we walked in there, and sure enough, there's Dennis Wilson buying everybody vodka shots. <laughs> and on top of that, when he buys a, when he's buying everyone a round of vodka shots, he's having a shot himself. And so he literally had to be carried out of the Apollo Lounge. And then the next day, I mean, Mike Love was furious at us. For you know, letting Dennis, you know, we don't, we, we didn't have him on a leash. What, what can we now, do? What, what, now, John, what was the night that I had Carl Wilson on my show, and Dennis disappeared with Murray? Do you remember that? Yeah, but that it turned out Murray came back. Yeah. but Carl didn't. Okay. <laughs> no, mean, no, no, no. But Dennis. I mean, but Dennis, Dennis, didn't. Dennis was still at the Apollo. But I, I remember Carl coming on the air and saying, "Dennis, if you're listening, yes, I know. We have a flight to catch tonight." No, Would you it was, please like, we have a, come, we come have a show tomorrow. Oh, well, we have a show tomorrow. Whatever it was, flight show something. Please come back to the radio station. Right? Okay. You know, <laughs> you know that's how it had, was. Yeah, we dealt with a lot of bands over the years at MMS, and the Aerosmith stories we can go oh, on forever. We'll but, get there. We'll but, get there. The beat, but but 
dealing with Dennis Wilson, Dennis Wilson, I think of everybody we ever had at the station, was always a, a problem in a good way, but he was really like the most bizarre person. He, he made Keith Moon look, look tame. <laughs> Uh, Jules in France. So in '75, you have you know the Rolling Stones come you know for the first time uh, for World Series. They'd come back. Uh, you had Yes, you had Aerosmith, all these bands. I'm curious, how did you navigate the egos of these bands, right? Because you had to arrange the lineup in a certain order that wouldn't piss anybody off, and you also had all these bands coming in with their requirements, demands, and riders. So how did you navigate all that stuff? Don't look at me. <laughs> Just. You let Fran charm him, is that it? <laughs> Wait, I was just how, cleaning how dressing rooms. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, as you probably all know, the rider is the Bible. And they send that ahead. And we had some odd things, but the World Series of Rock, I have to say, at that time, I was not involved with the riders. But I will say... The English bands always put in their rider in capital letters, no American beer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the things, I mean, so the very first concert, the Beach Boys, Jewel said, look, Fran, I need somebody to cook for everybody, so you just come right downtown. And he rented a big grill, and I grilled hot dogs, and I made a big pot of chili and a a watermelon basket. So, (laughs) so corny. But, I mean, I literally was grilling hot dogs all day long because as every band came in, you know, they'd set up and I had to feed their crew and their crew. And the, I finally... Pri- the price was right. <laughs> <laughs> so at the end of that show, Jill said, you're fired. But we had heard about this Chinese chef that had done some parties that we knew, and he had this giant walk. It must have been four feet wide. And so we called the Chinese chef and asked him if he would cater the next World Series of Rock. And he did. He had a little restaurant, so he brought all of his people, and he set it up in our big catering tent. And they brought shomai and and sliced pork and, I mean, everything that was delicious. But outside of the tent was Paul with his giant wok, you know, stirring, and the smell went everywhere, and everybody crowded. Even the band members came out of their little hovels and came to eat the Chinese food. After that, every time a band would come to Cleveland for the World Series of Rock, in their rider, we want the Chinese chef. Because <laughs> they were getting hot dogs and fried chicken everywhere else. When you look back at the World Series of Rock and you research it, um, you know, there's all stuff going on, right? You have the bands, you have the crowd. And all. Jules, was the biggest headache the field conditions was that it seems like because you go into 76 obviously <laughs> was that the the biggest obstacle with all this you know going back and forth with them trying to they wanted the field to be good for the Indians games and this was an ongoing battle <laughs> oh, there's no question that was one of the biggest problems that we had because the Indians we were really playing in between the Indians ball games and so um, I think we, you know, over the years we might have done more concerts, but because we were limited to the open spaces in the Indian schedule, where we needed X amount of days before the concert, X amount of days after the concert for the field to be covered and recover. And I say recover because 
it's just the field was a mess after concerts. So um, we had to come up with some type of a covering. And I remember correctly, or maybe incorrectly, that the first thing that we used were plywood 4x8s. Well, if you can imagine a field covered with 4x8s, no air to get to the grass. Uh, it was down for three days because we had to cover very early. You pick up the plywood and it was all dead grass. Um, so over the years, we used um, different kinds of screening, um, plastic screening where supposedly the air got into the ground. We used different kinds of nylon coverings. I think there are pictures going around on the uh, at that time um, that people actually picked up the uh, covering during a rain, during a concert, and used it to cover themselves. <laughs> so um, I think even today, they haven't come up with an ideal covering. And there was no, because of this, there was no World Series of Rock in 76, not one, right? Um, was it ever in jeopardy? Did you ever think, like, this is just done? Well, we, we, um, they recovered the field. They did the field over, I think, in 1976, and we weren't able to have any concerts that year. Okay. So we persuaded Art to um, let us come back in 77 because we had a new kind of covering. <laughs> uh, Didn't work. <laughs> uh, John and Denny, I want to ask you guys, when you look at the, so when you look at the lineups, you go down you know, year by year um, to each date for the World Series of Rock. You look at 77, it's just Pink Floyd, like for one of the, just Pink Floyd. Um, talk to me about that show and just the idea of you know, what made Pink Floyd, it could just be Pink Floyd. I mean, that was the only World Series thing, was just one act. So describe, what was that show like? What was Pink Floyd like at that time? If I can say this, they had, they had a huge set. And I think that had a lot to do with it because uh, they, they had a big, big show with a huge set. And I think they, their insistence was that we have to be the only act. There's just no way we can allow anybody else on the stage that might uh, interfere with our set or uh, you know cause a problem or something like that yeah, there's but you've got room, yeah. to tell you know where i'm going with this right <laughs> i think so oh you know so we had dinner <laughs> we had dinner the other night and we talked about this the airplane everybody remember the jet okay well long story short we knew something was going to happen we didn't know it was going to be that and uh it really made it Started, there was never a rock show that started with a jet like that flying right over the stadium. Uh, long story short, they paid the fine, and uh, it's rock and roll history. They did not, the story... They, they did not get permission to do Correct me that. if I'm wrong, they did not have FAA clearance. No, they did not. So they bring this plane right over the stadium, and they drop it on purpose, and the thing's going down like this. And then as soon as Pink Floyd started the first note, it went... <laughs> and then took off. Yeah. It was the greatest intro yeah. I've ever it, seen it in my yeah. life. I mean, Jules, 
Jules, no, public, public, public hall yeah. was a great venue, but you could never pull yeah. that off in no. public hall. Yeah. But, but, but nobody else in the country, nobody else in the world ever had that experience. That was unique to Cleveland. That was unique to the World Series. But what I understand, and I don't know, maybe you don't, maybe it, it's known or it, it wasn't uh, official, but they, uh, they, you know, when they landed the plane at Burke, there was FAA officials and they were furious. Because I guess the thing fell off the, the, the air traffic control radar, and they said, holy smoke, this thing is going down in downtown Cleveland. And every alarm went off, and they went crazy. And so uh, uh, at the, when they landed at uh, Burke, uh, they got a, uh, whatever it was, $10,000 fine or whatever. Something like that. But it was yeah. like they were ready for it. They yeah. said, you know, we, they, we worked it into the agreement. It's, we the were, <laughs> it's, 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 what, it's what you call the cost of doing business. You know, there was another uh, story, not quite as bizarre, that came out of that concert. Um, the bag, Roger Waters. Oh, that's your story. Oh, yes. <laughs> Somebody's got to tell us the story now. Okay, I'll... <laughs> well, you know, it's part of the, um, the, um, the Belkin thing that we gave the bands these special gifts uh, for the different concerts, and this is in Fran's book, so if you read the book, this is, it's there. Um, we gave the, uh, the band these leather bags, beautiful leather bags, with gold imprinting, Cleveland Stadium, Pink Floyd, 1977. And so all of the ba band members had one of these, uh, the crew had uh, some, and then we made a few for ourselves that we kept over the years. Well, um, maybe 20 years later, Roger Waters came in town for a concert. I think it was 93, 94. And uh, we were backstage with him. And Roger said, you know, wait a second. I want to I show you something. And he comes out of his dressing room with this leather bag. And he says, I got to tell you, I've, this has been to every concert I've gone to since the stadium. And it's still alive. And he <laughs> brings it out. Two years later, I think he came back, and we were talking, and he said, you know, the bag that I had, it finally fell apart. Well, I remember that we had one at home that we kept for ourselves. I said, okay. And so during intermission, I ran home, got the bag, brought it back to Roger, and you, one of the happiest guys in the world. <laughs> Yeah, but I wasn't happy. <laughs> because when, when, well, when I'm getting ready to write my book and I'm photographing all my swag, I said, where's that, where's that bag from Pink Floyd? <laughs> I, I have to say, this, this is how cool this organization was. And I mean it. They were, this was a class organization. I want to give credit where credit's due. Jules picked all of our swag. I don't know if any of you know this, but when I married him, he was in the men's clothing business. So he knew fabric, color, quality. Ladies. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so when we made swag, lots of promoters made swag, but when we made swag, he picked it out and he always ordered the very best quality, the best quality shirts. When we started making pants, we started doing bags. 
always the best. And when a band would come in, the first question would be to our production person, is there Belkin swag? <laughs> so he did a great job. <laughs>86, you know, whatever the number was, 82,000, 86,000, you know, depending on where you read it. Was that the peak? Was that was that sort of the uh, the crown jewel of, of uh, jewel? Was that the crown jewel of, of the World Series of Rock, that stone show? Ask these guys. How did, how did you feel? Yeah, yeah, you I mean, when, that, it, yeah, actually, there's, there's a lot of history today there. This was at a time when the Rolling Stones were really, they weren't talking to the media, they weren't talking to anyone, but uh, Peter Rudge, who was manager of The Who, ended up managing that particular tour. And it was also the 10th anniversary of MMS. And we were basically told, well, if you can t take care of the Stones and a few things, maybe they'll do something back. And I know one of the things we did was get him a helicopter, or at least Mick, a helicopter from wherever he was to the stadium. And we did a, a few other things. But it, and it, t it turned out that, uh, and, the, and the other thing we asked for, and they went along with it, was they said, we're going to do a Rolling Stones orgy on, the, on that day. We're going to be playing nothing but the Rolling Stones on that, world, that, that day that the World Series of Rock is running. They said, can we broadcast that in the stadium? They hemmed and hawed and said, well, why not? It's their music. It's, be, be, it's going to be played in between the acts and all that. And it's, it's our radio station. Our ulterior motive was we knew that if you're going to have 80,000 people in that stadium and they're listening for more than 15 minutes at a time to WMMS, we would have the largest audience that any radio station in the world have. Now, you can say, you know, there's, there's, there's networks, you know, you, get, that you can say that you have a million people listening. But one radio station being broadcast in the stadium with over 80,000 people, that... You know, we had a world's record of the most people listening to one radio station at the same time. Not counting the people who were listening actually on a oh, radio. Yeah. You know? the, yeah. But it seemed like everybody was at the stadium that day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, uh, I mean, the Rolling Stones was, was still the, you know, the biggest band on earth back then. And uh, that, was, that was just an amazing show. The other thing about that show was that, that no, it was, it was 75, I guess. Ron Wood played two World Series of Rocks that year with the faces, with Rod Stewart and the faces, then he came back with the Rolling Stones. Right, right, right. Faces yeah. played that year also. Yeah. Talking about the faces, um, up until that time, I don't know if you remember when you would buy tickets, they were these little small tickets. Anyhow, Ticketron came into being just about that time, and we started using Ticketron, which was an automated... A printed ticket, and um, every, after every concert, Art would we would count the numbers of tickets that came through the turnstiles and report it back to Art because uh, he was on kind of a percentage rental of what we sold. Uh, so after the faces, I, I went back to Art and I said, Art, we sold I think it was sixty-five thousand tickets, 
Uh, next day, after the counting of the tickets, he came back to me and he said, Jules, he says, I'd like to meet with you in my office. I said, okay. He comes in and he says, you know, we counted 68,000 tickets and you reported that you sold 65. And we had a really a great relationship. And I said, Art, I, I have no idea. I said, let's, let's take a look at the tickets. And of course, we had all the tickets there. That was the first time that we encountered counterfeiting. There were 3,000 counterfeited tickets for that show. So when, I, when we talk about the numbers of people in the stadium, who knew? You know, that's, that same year, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, so Fleetwood Mac's supposed to play, I think, August 5th. They wind up canceling. I think Lindsey Buckingham got sick. Uh, they wind up playing, I think, the 26th of August. Uh, Bob Seger, like, stepped aside so Fleetwood Mac could, could play the date. But in the middle of that, everyone but Lindsey flew. Did they fly to Cleveland for a press conference? D Denny or John, talk to me about it because that seemed – that's rare. That was rare, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, it was at the Boncourt Hotel, and uh, we ended up broadcasting the press conference live. Wow. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, that was very unusual. But uh, what was it? Lindsay had, uh, I forget what it was. Um, uh, he, he had something that developed, that delayed. Yeah, the right, right before the concert. Yeah. They came. But the idea that they came into town, that was came off a yeah. private plane to make this pre yeah. press conference. Yeah, I mean, that, that was unheard of. And then come back the next year. Um, so there's, there was one World Series of Rock as we get into 79 for, for reasons, but I, I want to talk about that one show. So you have Aerosmith, uh, Ted Nugent, then Lizzie, ACDC, um, Scorpions. I think I got them all, maybe. Uh, so it was, it was really probably one of the more eventful ones because you had uh, Scorpions' first U.S. show, uh, Journey, as someone said. Journey was also on the bill uh, right before they blew up, I think, too, when they started to, to take off. Um, yeah, it was just around the time, I think, yeah, Love yeah. and Touch, whatever the first single was that was starting right. to happen. ACDC did a, uh, a documentary, or not a documentary, well, a, a they filmed DVD it for, or Yeah, they filmed VHS it originally for Australian then. TV. They filmed that, right. the, the, this part there. But we should focus on Aerosmith. Okay, so... Um, the reason, you know, so everybody knows this, the reason I first got really, really interested in the World Series of Rock was reading a book about Aerosmith and Run DMC that looks at both those acts as they lead up to Walk This Way. And in that book that I read, they quote John Gorman um, about his interactions with Steven Tyler um, the night before, and then also Aerosmith, Joe Perry winds up leaving Aerosmith after the show. First, John, well, okay, go ahead. What I can tell you is that the <laughs> night before they came, and Denny was on the air, Aerosmith come down to the station. The whole band comes down with their girlfriends and hangers on and all that. And you could just tell from the tension, you know, that nobody was getting along. There was, there was just this, this big tension. And Denny is struggling along dealing with the band that, you know, they, they're mad at each other. So they're not, you know, they're not talking like a band. One is they're sort of answering in one sentence, you know, word and word and all that. And, you know, and they're coming out and, Coming in and out of the, uh, it, it, it's, I don't know how Denny got through the interview. It was a long interview because they stayed for a long time. But I remember that I, I left the studio, went back into my office, and all of a sudden I hear this commotion in our newsroom. And it didn't make sense because the newsroom closed on Friday night because we didn't do news on the weekend and we'd open up on Monday. And we had this long table in the newsroom because in that time we'd get our news from uh, these, these teletype machines. 
and it would be you know local, regional, national, and you and we do this to put the news, rip it and read. You rip it, you put the, the uh, copy on, and figure out how what your newscast is going to be for five minutes. But otherwise, that table is just a long six foot, actually longer than six feet. And I walk in the room, and there is Steven Tyler on all fours on the table with this other guy who is obviously his dealer. And he is snorting a line of cocaine that is on one, one on the, covering the whole table, you know, a line covering the whole table. And he's just crawling on all fours snorting that, that line. Do you remember what, I don't know if you remember what I said when, when we, we both saw yeah. that, okay? And I remember going back into the control room and saying, do we have a number of an ambulance? Yeah, exactly. This, exactly. I'm telling you, this guy's going to have a heart attack. I but, mean, right here in our station. I, I just felt it was going to happen. But, he didn't, but, you know, But the other thing we were realizing is, I mean, Denny and I were saying, I hope this Aerosmith show comes off tomorrow because, I mean, you could tell there was just tension. These guys wouldn't, I mean, Joe Perry and Stephen Tyler wouldn't even look at each other. And, uh, you know, sure enough, that was after that show. And I remember during the show, Stephen Tyler's singing one song, and all of a sudden Joe Perry starts playing another. And so you could tell, and they're giving each other the finger and everything else, and you could tell it's a problem. And, you know, that is when, uh, I, th I think it was, uh, I, f I forget whose wife, Tom Hamilton's wife threw a glass yeah. of milk at Joe Perry's wife at the time. And that started a big, you know, argument with the bands, and that's when Joe Perry left. And Aerosmith broke up temporarily. Well, five after years. That World he came Series back five years later, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they keep, I mean, Aerosmith carried on for a little while, but they had lost all their popularity until the original band got back together. A lot of actually, that that whole day was um, chaotic. I don't know if you remember, there was um, some young guy was killed on the mall coming down into the stadium. Had nothing to do with the concert. It was early in the day. Um, they really didn't know who did it, but the fact that there was a death uh, associated with the World Series of Rock didn't lie well. Dennis Kucinich was our mayor um, at the time, and um, Dennis called me in a day or so later after the concert, and he was, he was not happy. I wasn't happy. Um, it was really a very tragic situation, and he said, you know, if you want to continue doing concerts, this is what I suggest you do. He says, from now on, in order to avoid these people who roam around downtown, start your concerts at 12 o'clock at night and run them during the night. Well, I, I didn't think that was a particularly bright suggestion, and I'm not making this political, but I couldn't imagine walking out of that office at this is what we're going to do. <laughs> with all the, you know, that it came out of that with, you know, cancellations and, and I, you know, only one more uh, World Series of Rock happened uh, in 1980 with headlined by Bob Seger. Were you kind of getting the sense towards that time that it was coming to an end, that it, that it was time for it to end? Actually, it was at the end of, after 79, um, Modell said no more concerts after the uh, Aerosmith. Um, and I can't remember how we were able to get um, Seeger in 80, but um, that definitely was it. Over the years, I, I think that they were just tired of having to redo the fields, having to work out 
schedules, or, and we had to work our way through schedules. After that, you would, you know, there were concerts, but it was one a year, maybe. You know, it's all things come to an end. Things don't last forever. And uh, I think the time was right for the, the, the series to stop because very shortly afterward, MTV came in. Acts were not touring as much as they used to because they were making videos instead of traveling around. And the big, big mega shows like the World Series of Rocks, uh, there weren't that many of them anymore. Um, so... Uh, there were a the lot of bands too. Timing yeah. was right. Yeah, I think. and and you know that that was at a time when there was so many new rock bands coming out, and there were so many other concerts that I mean, you still had. I mean, Cleveland was it was almost like every night there was a concert. Almost every night, people were going downtown to see rock and roll. Or the Coliseum. And the Coliseum came along, and right. we need some to come back. <laughs> Seriously, other than country, I'm sorry, I, we need some rock. Yeah, rock I wanted to, you know. Um, I think we're going to have a, a good amount. Uh, I want to open this up to questions. I think we have uh, Mike Miller's pointing. I, I got here. Oh, okay. This is my boss, so I better listen to him. <laughs> Mike Norman, what do you got? Whatever, whatever, whatever you want to do. We can open it up for questions. Yeah, I we're going to open. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. We'll try to get one of the, the mic wranglers over to you and fire away. We got a guy right We'll go right here, right front, stage front. Is it true that WMMS stood for We Makes Me Smile? And who came up with that? It, it stood for whatever you wanted it to stand for. <laughs> now, I got there. Let me tell you something. I, I got to MMS. I was in Boston, uh, on air in Boston, and I got to MMS in October 1971. And I stayed for 15 years through 1986. And we never said that. That was... <laughs> We were, we, were, we were far more subtle than that. Uh, but uh, no, that was the, the fans made that up. That, we, that was never an official slogan. All right, got a question over here. Um, I read or heard somewhere that Cleveland sold more records per capita than any other city, and what year would that have been, if so? I know we used that line to get the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Whether... <laughs> Whether it's true or not, I, I really don't know. But that was, that was one of the selling points of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We sold a lot of records. We, we I don't know it. if we broke a record there. That's a whole other thing. But, we broke uh, a lot of records, but too. We, yes, <laughs> yes. In fact, they, just like, well, real quick, like Def Leppard, I think it was the first date they played in America was at a World Series of Rock. The first time the Scorpions played, they played a World Series of Rock. I mean, can you imagine coming across the pond and... That's the first concert you played. Well, and, in fact, and the Scorpions, when they played, yeah. the, the lead singer couldn't even speak English. That's right. He could sing in English, That's but right. he, couldn't, he couldn't speak English. And, and I can tell you, um, we used to play a lot of imports before these acts had uh, American contracts. And we played the Heart album, which they had no American contract yet. And we played the Rush album, where there was no American contract yet. And I think... A Susie lot, Qua a Susie lot, Quattro. Susie Quattro, and a lot of our airplay had to do with these acts getting signed, because Peter Schlewin used to run Record Revolution, and he always stocked all kinds of imports, and they used to keep an eye on that, and they'd say, "Oh my God, look at all the imports they're selling on Hart. You know, they could maybe do some numbers with an American contract." So Hart, Rush, and yeah, Susie Quattro, and. Uh, 
couple of other folks I, I can't think of now. We really were, if I must say, responsible for getting them signed in the yeah. USA. One of the things, it was a, it was a well-oiled machine between... Thank, thank you, Mother. It was a well-oiled machine between, between, yeah, well machine between, between WMS and Belkin Productions. We talked a lot and you know, we updated each other on what was happening musically. Uh, one of the things, like for, for instance, Roxy Music, we'd get the imports early. When, when Roxy played Cleveland, they'd say, here's a cut from our new album, and they'd start to play, and people would be applauding. And you'd, you'd actually see the look on Brian Ferry's face, like, they know my, uh, the music already. What about Bowie? Mm -hmm. Oh, and Bowie, yeah. But I mean, there was so much that, you know, that we played this act. Uh, Jules and I talked an awful lot, and you also ch checked with the, the record companies and all that, so we knew exactly what acts. You know, there were so many acts that started there, the tubes. There's another example that nobody else in the country was playing the tubes, but they they sold out. And I think the first time they played, you you booked them. I only booked them because my son thought they were the greatest band in the world. He's over there, and they used to call them tubes at school. He loved the tubes. Yeah. But then, then but you see booked that? them like you booked them like four or five yeah. days, uh, four or five weeks later, and brought them back. But and see, that, that's unheard of today. Let, let me say something. That this is what's. This is what's missing in today's uh, commercial radio, all right? And the fact is that at the old days at MMS, we locally programmed it. We picked the music. All the jocks were music freaks. Leo, Matt, Betty Corbin, all of us. We all got copies of every release that came out. The record guys would bring 12, 13, 15 copies. And we'd all go home on the weekend and listen, that's good, that's good, that sucks. This is good, that sucks. <laughs> and then we'd all get together and say, what'd you find? That doesn't exist anymore. The, the big corporations now run these stations like McDonald's. And you can go to any city, just like you can go to any city, and the McDonald's are exactly alike in Seattle and in Portland, Maine and Miami. The McDonald's is a McDonald's. The, the, the menu is the same, they look the same, and that's how they run corporate radio today. That's not what we did. We worked very closely with uh, Belkin Productions. We worked very closely with the Agora. We, were, we uh, locally programmed the music, and we were able to start, uh, 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 you know, uh, interest in acts right from the ground level, and that doesn't happen today. And that's why the radio ratings, again, I said it before, we had 700,000 regular listeners at the top of our game in the uh, late 70s. Today, the number one station in Cleveland, I, I think, is 400,000, and uh, MMS isn't even in the top five. So uh, things have changed very yeah, much. Part, part of it, too, because this is about the World Series of Rock, what really made those, those bills... And, and, and very attractive is when you had the multiple bills, we were able to, like, you know, Def Leppard was another example. The first time Def Leppard came out was right after our album was released. In fact, I met the band backstage at the World Series of Rock, and I'm waiting, and there's a bunch of these young kids, and they're saying, I wonder where the band is. All of a sudden, I realized those young kids <laughs> with Def Leppard, they were only, like, you know, 18, 19 years old at the most. But... You know, a, a lot of the, when you look at the rosters of, of, uh, of, of the World Series of Rock, you'll see a lot of those cases was the first time that they ever really played in the States, or first time they ever played to such a large audience. I want to, you know, make sure we get in more questions in uh, we over here. One, one back here. Hi, I was just wondering if Springsteen was ever considered in a lineup. 
guys. Springsteen ever considered for a World Series of Rock? He played the stadium, but it wasn't a World Series of Rock. It was after, after the World Series of Rock ran. But he did play the stadium with Springsteen. Oh, yeah, it was 1985. Yeah. All right, got one here. Yeah, what did the bands charge back then? Ten dollars. <laughs> what did the bands charge, Jules? Come on, lay it out here. <laughs> really, honestly, um, I, you know, at the at that time, um, maybe you were talking. 50,000, 50, 75,000. Um, but again, your lead band would always have a percentage clause uh, that they would be getting a little kick off the, um, the gross. So it wasn't just, you know, here's the money and then the rest stays with us. I remember um, if the uh, sports writer, Hal Leibowitz, uh, one time wrote about the um, Floyd concert in Cleveland, and the gross on that concert was $969,000. And he wrote, and the Belkins took home close to a million dollars. Well, it wasn't even close. He forgot about, you know, stadium rentals and percentages. And, but it was an exaggerated time. Right, and also do the inflation calculation between 1978 and 2022. Uh, 75 grand today is what, $300,000? And what were you paying for tickets? You were paying 15 bucks a ticket. Today, you know, it's 450 bucks for a good ticket. You have a question right here? Do I have to, no. So I want to go back to uh, the, the crowd control. Um, what because, crowd control? Okay, well I was there. And I just wondered, because it hasn't been brought up yet, whether you felt that the free clinic volunteers moving up and down through the stands doing uh, primary intervention, uh, I mean, well, I guess my question is, did you, how did you decide that you wanted the free clinic to do the first aid on, in the tent? Actually, you're one of the first pe persons that remembers what happened at those concerts. <laughs> Most people never remembered. It's amazing. Oh, we got, we got a, you must have right. been quite young. <laughs> we'll be let Actually, answer. one of the first things that we did when we started this series was to make sure that we had the kind of medical facility that we thought would be appropriate for that audience. And um, we had a very, very close relationship with the free clinic. And, and you're right, we did try to send people up into the audience because you know, once somebody uh, got sick or had an overdose or something, because that audience on the field was so tightly packed, it was really difficult to get to people. I mean, thank goodness over the years, um, really, we did not have any major problems. All right, got one up here. Okay, we had such a great time. One of you guys going to bring it back.
We're all retired. <laughs> we got one over here. One over here. It's it's. Well, let me say something. It's it's not the same world. You know, it really isn't. You can't you can't bring back the past. You. It's best that we all just enjoy the memories. Well said. What the, what there is of them. <laughs> we have. I've got a question. Yeah. Those events had to be so stressful, extremely, extremely stressful to put on. And we know how these bands, they're, they're crazy. Did you ever have an instance where a band almost didn't show up or they were too stoned in the back to appear on stage? I mean, you got to have some of those kind of stories, I would think. Well, we talked about Aerosmith. <laughs> and we talked about Aerosmith. <laughs> And we talked about Aerosmith. I have a question. The 1995 concert for the Hall of Fame, did that bring back, which you were involved in helping to produce, Jules, did that bring back some memories of uh, World Series of Rocks? Because that was a pretty epic show. No, you know, it, it really wasn't because it was, uh, it was all reserved seats. There were seats on the field. It was a very mellow situation compared to um, the the World Series. The fact that they had so many uh, outstanding performers certainly was something. But the show itself was a very tightly programmed um, show. Ours were you know somewhat loose. We knew when the bands uh, were supposed to come on and go off, but. Uh, when you get a reserve seat audience versus a general admission audience uh, at that time, it was two different types of audiences. And so I think I, I think it was a live television show too, right? Yeah. So they HBO, it was stage HBO. for television, you know, as opposed to uh, you know like a World well, Series. Bands weren't doing a set; they were doing one or two songs. That's right. That's right. Yep. Troy, I got one more up here. Okay. I want to know how many. Rock stars hit it on Fran. <laughs> so you must have seen the uh, Fran in the video, right? <laughs> you must have read my book. <laughs> well, there's one, there is a classic story that you'll find in the book, and if Fran wishes to tell it again, you can tell it in front of this live tell audience. Tell it, Fran. We want to hear it, Fran. <laughs> well, <clears throat> this was very, very early on. In fact, I think it was one of our first shows. It was in 1966, right. our first uh, jazz fest at the Cleveland Arena. Right. And in those days, I had long platinum hair. Uh, and... Miles Davis was playing, and he... Wait a second, don't forget your kids are here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, them again? So I was a huge Miles Davis fan from college, and I'm standing on the side of the stage just so excited to be this close even to Miles Davis, and he's playing, and as he comes walking off the stage, he sees me standing there, and he walks right up to me, and I'm thinking, oh my God, is he gonna talk to me? <laughs> and he walks right up and he says, hey baby, you wanna fuck? 
Well, first of all, I never even heard that word out loud before. <laughs> I mean, we, we can, and, we can and, tell these stories all yeah. night. Friend. At least the, one, the ones that we remember. Friend. Friend. And you said... My husband's a promoter. He won't pay you if I do. All right, we got one more up here on the mess. Thank you all for sharing these memories. It's such a walk down the lane. And Denny, just hearing your voice brings me back to high school, and it's so cool to hear it again. Oh my Thank goodness. Thank you. It's awesome. <laughs> my question... Wow. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. My question it just... When you talk about coffee break concerts and how Cleveland used to be one of the cool places for everyone to start a career, I feel like our city has fallen off the radar of where young bands come to get exposed. And I don't know if any of you have insights into how the world has changed that way. John? Well, these are different times. C commercial radio has changed, but uh, keep an eye on online radio. Uh, oh, that, wow. That is going to, yeah. And, and oh, wow, we'll be back. Yeah. I promise you, oh, wow, we'll be back. We're working on it right now. Uh, Steve Pappas over there is helping me, and uh, we'll, we'll bring it back. It's taking, taking a long time, but uh, Good things take a long time to. It, it's going to come back probably as two different radio stations. That's the only hint I'll give you. Troy, can we have another minute? Of course. Do you? <coughs> Ten. Uh, when when Fran was out um, doing her book signings, um, there's a classic story that she would tell at the end of the signing, which I think is rock and roll. So why don't you give them your closing story? Is it all right, Troy? Yes, of it's course. It's not World Series of Rock. Oh, no. Go ahead. All right. Well... Is anybody... Who's going to say no to that? <laughs> <laughs> As most of you, I hope, know, I did write a book called Rock This Town, Backstage Stories You Never Heard, and Swag... You... Does everybody know what swag means? Yeah. Okay. Swag You Never Saw. The shirts, you know, that we made just for the bands. No one else saw them. Anyhow, so after the book was published, as different bands would come to town that, you know, we had a relationship with and they were in my book, I would take the book downtown. So Kiss was in town and we went down. We're friends with his manager and we know all those guys from so long. So Gene, Gene and the band, actually, they were in what's this green room and they were waiting for um, the people lining up outside. It was a meet and greet. These people were paying, I think, $1,000 to come in and shake hands with the band and get a picture. So they're lining up outside, and the band's in this room all dressed up. And the manager mentions to me, I have to go to L.A. tomorrow. I'm leaving Gene and the rest of the band in town. They'll be here, and I'll pick them up on Tuesday. So I went up to Gene, and I said, and I had just given him my book, and he looked through it, so he knew I wrote the book. I said, Gene, I understand you're going to be in town tomorrow night. Would you like Jules and I to come down and take you out to dinner? Oh, he said, I can't go out to dinner. I would be swamped by my fans. <laughs> I said, well, you'll take off your makeup and wash your face, 
and you'll be fine. Fran, I am on 44 TV stations all over the world. I can't go anywhere without my fans swamping me. I cannot go out to dinner. So I'm thinking, all right, Fran, be nice. So I said, oh, Jean, I, I understand how you feel. Since my book came out, <laughs> whenever I go anywhere, people come up to me and they say, oh, aren't you Fran Belkin? I just read your book. Well, he rolls his eyes at me, and he's done with me. He turns his attention now to the first meet-and-greet guy who's coming in. Got his hand out. Gene puts his hand out. This guy's walking towards Gene. His face is like pulsing with excitement. He's so excited to meet Gene Simmons. And as he approaches Gene, he happens to glance over at me, and he stops, and he says, Aren't you Fran Belkin? <laughs> I just read your book. to thank Gene Simmons for the best story I'll probably ever have in my whole life. I want to, you know, this has been such a great night. I appreciate everybody coming. I appreciate this panel. And Fran, especially, um, so modest, so humble. And, you know, I, I wrote something like she was a key figure with Belgian Productions, and she, she had me change it. She, you know, she didn't want that to say that. But everybody you talk to has so many amazing things to say about Fran. And then as soon as you see her face in that video, which is from 77 that we showed, uh, you see why. So um, th that's an amazing story. And I just wanted to say, I, I know, you know, you, you said, you know, not a key figure, but I think everybody who knows you knows how important you were. And um, for everybody, I just want to personally, uh, for CLE Rocks um, Presents and for Cleveland.com, want to thank this amazing panel. So everybody give it up for this panel tonight. Um, I want to thank uh, our sponsor, Wonderstruck, uh, July 9th and 10th, Lakeland Community College. Uh, go to wonderstruckfest.com to get your tickets. Um, and also, uh, I want to thank uh, Mary Ruth uh, Kugler, who shot all of that footage. She's not here tonight. She's in L.A., but she shot all that footage on her Super 8 back in uh, 77, and that's, that's what we showed. Um, and Denny, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say one thing, and that is that when we did MMS and when we worked with Belkin, that was 45, 50 years ago, just about. And it's a great honor, and I, I really mean it, and I'm saying this from my heart, to uh, have you folks remember something that we did all that time ago. And it really is a great, great honor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming out. We've got more events coming up, so stay tuned in the music box. We have one on April 13th, looking back at all the legendary Cleveland music venues. Thank you so much, guys. Wonderstruck is coming to Cleveland. For this two-day music festival, see top artists, including the Lumineers, Vampire Weekend, and more. Get your tickets now at wonderstruckfest.com.